Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. Today is the first day of fall and the days are getting shorter, but hopefully you're still finding some time to be outside, maybe even with a cup of cider or some pumpkin spice latte if that's your thing. Fall gardening is well on its way and this is a great season to harvest squash and other root vegetables and also prepare your garden for next year. Although springs feels a ways away, and believe me, we're not here wishing time away, but it is time to pick out bulbs and start planning for the next growing season. And here to talk about what you need to do to put your garden to bed and maximize the health of your lawn and soil is horticulturist Charlie Nardozzi. He's also the host of the Connecticut Garden Journal on Connecticut Public Radio. Thank you so much, Charlie, for joining us again. It's nice to be here, Kat. And for our listeners, you can also join the conversation. Let us know if you have any questions, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. So, Charlie, want to start out, you have an amazing garden yourself. Can you tell us about what your garden has gone through this year, especially because we've had a lot of rainy, cloudy days here in Connecticut. I don't know if it was the same for you. Uh, yes, it's been very, very similar. In fact, up uh, where I live in Vermont, uh, we had flooding uh, in July, which uh, fortunately we didn't have any in our garden, but many gardens around the state got wiped out. Uh, so it's been a very wet, very wet summer, and it just continues to be, actually. It's just starting to dry out a little bit now, but uh, there's still puddles around our yard and in, in the fields from all the rain we've gotten. Uh, so it's been an up and down summer. Uh, it's been actually a, a summer where I, I feel for the farmers. <laughs> because, oh, definitely. Yeah, all this rain makes it really hard to do everything from making hay to growing vegetables to growing fruits. Uh, so uh, what we found is that certain things have done really well. So I, I'm, I am thankful for the rain because I planted a bunch of trees and shrubs in the spring and I didn't have to water them all summer. Uh, they did really well. They're looking really healthy, and they'll probably be all set up for next year. Uh, perennials did really well. Uh, perennial flowers, as long as you have well-drained soil, uh, everything from peonies to echinacea to uh, back-eyed Susans, uh, flocks, they all grew well and flowered pretty well for the most part. Um, but you know, a lot of the annual crops, a lot of the annual flowers were very slow to perform, and a lot of the vegetables, uh, certain vegetables, oddly enough, melons did really well for me, which I don't really know why, because you'd think, hot and dry more for melons, but they produced really well. Uh, but tomatoes, I had a lot of diseases on tomatoes this year, did not get as big a crop as I normally get. So like every year, it's it's a mixed bag. And this year, uh, because of the rain, it really affected uh, many different things. Yeah, that does sound like a mixed bag. And we're going to be talking about trees and perennials and vegetables in a little bit. Do want to get a question from one of our producers, Katie. She's asking, did anyone else's butterfly bush die? Mine was going strong in Branford till this year. Is that something that you're hearing about butterfly bush dying? Or how can Not she keep them alive? Okay. Uh, was that? <laughs> no, just, yeah. Did, did, are you hearing if anyone else's butterfly bush is dying? Or how can you, oh, what can oh. you do to keep it alive? Uh, yeah. So uh, 
I have not heard that, uh, but butterfly bushes are short-lived perennials, uh, especially in our climate. So I'm not surprised about that. Uh, what usually happens is they die in the winter and then they don't just don't come back the next spring. But it sounds like Katie had it come back and then just died. And it may be due to all that rain, you know, if, especially if she's growing on clay soils where the soil says really wet and really cool for a long period of time, the roots can rot. And when the roots rot, of course, the, the whole shrub or whole uh, plant will just die at the same time. Mm, the rotting might be a theme today. Yes, in, it in, might be. Right. <laughs> Thanks, Rain. Um, but I also <laughs> want to talk about fall crops. I think a lot of people are super excited um, for this season. I'm a big squash person. So what vegetables are you looking out for this season? Well, one thing that seemed to work really well this year, and I'm doing this more and more in our garden, is planting a second season of crops, especially when you think about vegetables or even flowers, for that matter, annual flowers, planting in July and August for the fall. And I did that, and I've got an amazing crop of summer squash and zucchini right now. And we're harvesting them. The plants look great. There's very little insect damage on them. Uh, I think I might not even grow them in the spring next year. <laughs> Just grow them in, in the summer uh, for a late summer fall crop. Uh, so things like that is definitely ways to get around what's going on in the season. And it ensures if, for example, my uh, spring crop of zucchini got hit by squash bugs and squash vine borers and I tried to keep on top of them, but being busy, I didn't really have enough time. Uh, so this way I, I get the squash I want uh, just a little bit later in the season. So being a little more creative with your garden sometimes is a way to get around this and growing a diversity of things. So we'll stay on the squash topic for right now. Don't just grow a butternut squash or a delicata squash or a zucchini, grow a bunch of different types because some types will be less likely to get affected by insects and by the weather than other types and grow them in different mediums. So maybe grow them in a raised bed. I do straw bale gardening, which is something we could talk more about if people are interested, where you grow things literally in a bale of hay. And I did that with an Italian vining squash and it's going crazy. I'm giving these vining squash away to anyone who will have them um, because it's growing so well. So growing a variety of things in a variety of different in situations can ensure that something's going to work. So it sounds like you should start your own CSA and I'll be signing up if you do want. <laughs> <laughs> sure. And so, I mean, so you're talking about uh, diversity of squash and I, I think uh, that will cause a lot of excitement for a lot of us uh, squash fans. But so what can you do to prevent rot? Because I know uh, we've talked about them just kind of hanging out on the soil. They could just be rotting there without you knowing, right? Yes, that exactly that exact thing happened to my red curry squash. Um, I don't know if you've grown that one before, uh, but it's a beautiful looking squash, really bright kind of orange red color to it. Nice small shape, kind of like a small Hubbard squash. We had some beautiful ones just sitting on the soil and just kind of waiting. You know, it's summertime. I didn't think there's no rush to har to harvest them. I checked them one day and they were completely rotted on the on the soil side. There was just the skin was it looked good, but there was nothing inside. Uh, so things like that definitely were happening this summer with squash uh, rotting because of the soil being so wet. So some of the things you could do is grow in a raised bed. Make sure you mulch the bed really well so they're, the squash are sitting on a, a bed of hay or grass clippings or something that's going to keep them away from that really wet soil. Um, or do that straw bale gardening technique that I mentioned. It's not just good for climbing squash. You can put a, a zucchini in there and a summer squash in there as well. Uh, something that's going to keep the the plants elevated so that when it does rain, the rain moves away, the water moves away from the plants and so they don't uh, necessarily have to rot. 
So it seems like raised beds are something that we should all consider if we don't want our plants to rot, sounds like. Yeah, I'm, I'm doing more and more of those every year. Um, I think this year I'm going to put a couple more in uh, just because you know I grew some things in the ground this year, my potatoes, for example, and they just really didn't do that well. Uh, because it was so wet a lot of them rotted so i think that's a way to get around a lot of these climate change uh, situations that are happening with our adverse weather and a very extreme weather uh, when it's really rainy of course i say all this and next year if we do these show uh, i might be talking about drought i was gonna say <laughs> so, or it's gonna be really really dry right, <laughs> we right. can't predict but, Right. One, one way or the other. Right. And so, I mean, on the raised bed uh, question, too, is that a good way to stop critters from coming in? Because I have some really sweet and cute groundhogs that likes to hang out, and that kind of stops me from wanting to plant anything. Yeah. I mean, cute groundhogs are very sweet to look at, uh, but they can wipe out your uh, vegetables or flowers even yes. uh, really quickly. Uh, so, yeah, so raised bed is nice, especially if you want to build it up really high. So uh, if you could build it up two, three feet tall, it's a, lot, it's a little more wood and more soil. But it is a bed that would be more accessible for people, especially those um, who have a hard time uh, moving around in the garden and bending over. Uh, so you can actually sit there in a chair and, and garden if you had to. But also it'll keep things like rabbits and woodchucks away from your uh, plants because even though woodchucks can climb, I don't think they're going to try to scale up the side of a raised bed. I haven't seen that happen yet. If I do, you'll be the first to know. I um, want to see the photo. I video. do too. Absolutely. No, absolutely. And okay. here, here's a reminder for our listeners that you can also join the conversation and let us know if you have any questions, 888-720-9677, or leave us a comment on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. We have another question from our senior producer, Tess, who says, I picked up my mums a couple weeks ago and I have not seen any flowers yet. When will they bloom? When will they bloom, oh, Charlie? They they should be blooming very soon. Uh, most of the mums you see in garden centers and nurseries, they're even, they probably already have their buds set on them. If she got a mum that doesn't have buds set on them, that's a little odd uh, because usually they're already ready to go when you buy them. Uh, so I would just uh, check and make sure there's buds on them, uh, Tess, and then also just give them a little time. I think a few sunny days this coming week supposed to be uh, sunnier. Uh, so that should uh, pop them right out. And next week, you should have a nice display of flowers. All right. Well, we'll keep you posted because she says there are buds. So we'll take, uh, a, we'll yes. take a look. Coming soon. <laughs> Coming keep them soon. in the sun. Keep them in the sun. That's an important part about it. All right. We're noting that down. And so with adding to the list of things to do, is this a good time to start picking out and planting bulbs? Uh, yes. Well, picking out, yes. Planting, no. Uh, picking out bulbs is important to do, especially if you're going to buy them locally versus through the mail. Uh, because uh, what happens with garden centers is that they get a big bulb shipment in August, usually, uh, for all the spring flowering bulbs, the tulips, daffodils, hyacinths, all of those. And that's it for the season. They don't get another shipment in the fall or two shipments, three shipments. So what they get in that first big haul is what they have. So the sooner you get out there, the better the choice you're going to have as far as the different types of bulbs and the different flower colors that you can choose. So I always encourage people to go out in September, uh, buy all the bulbs that you're thinking of growing, um, but you don't want to plant them until mid to end of October. So you want to wait at least a month uh, to plant them into the ground. At the same time, you'd be planting garlic um, and uh, shallots as well. Okay, yeah, we'll definitely be um, getting into the garlic conversation in a, in a quick moment. But I want to ask, too, when it comes to bulbs, can you explain to our listeners what companion planting is and what does that look like when it comes to bulbs? So when it comes to bulbs, uh, there is a technique. It's called layering, or you can call it companion planting, where you plant bulbs, uh, different kinds of bulbs, in the same hole. So if you think of it in terms of either a container or a hole in the ground, 
instead of just having a whole bunch of bulbs kind of scattered out in a, in a big garden area, you concentrate them in one spot. And the reason you're doing this is that you're going to get a bigger show in the spring and a longer show because you're going to have bulbs that are coming up and flowering at different times in the spring. So what you will do, for example, would be uh, say you dug up a two by two uh, area up for your bulbs. On the bottom, you put the, the biggest bulbs, like the big daffodils, for example, or big hyacinths. And those would usually about be about six inches into the soil, depending upon the kind of soil you have. Clay soil would be a little shallower, sandy soil a little deeper. And so you put a layer of those down, you add some uh, soil over the top of those bulbs, and then you put your medium-sized bulbs, like tulips, for example. Um, you put those in about four inches deep, cover those with soil, and then on the top, couple inches deep, you put in the small bulbs, the scillas, the crocus, kind of doxa, snowdrops, things of that nature. So what will happen is, depending on the varieties you choose, in the spring, they'll start coming up and the little bulbs will start blooming first, and then maybe the tulips, if they're early or mid-season next, and then if you have a late season daffodil, days would come up the, the third time, the third group. Um, and that would actually extend the flowering season for weeks. So instead of getting a big burst of tulips for you know a few days and then we get a windstorm and they all go <laughs> lose all their petals, yeah. uh, you'll have color in there for a number of weeks. And you mentioned quite a few flowers there. Do you have any bulb recommendations for those who are interested in starting this process? Uh, well, you know, there's lots of different types out there. So I would just look at the the uh, maturity that they'll often say on the packaging if it's an early, mid or late season bulb. So you can kind of think about your your combinations by looking at that. So it could be an early daffodil, a mid season tulip, maybe a late season hyacinth, something of that nature. I also love growing the wildflowers tulips, the species tulips. And these are smaller than the regular cut flower tulips, which is what we normally would grow. And that, in fact, is they come from Holland. Most of them come from Holland. Uh, and the reason that they're so tall and, and thin like that is that the big industry in Holland is not the, the bulb industry, but the cut flower industry. Right. So they grow bulbs for cut flowers and they ship them around the world. Uh, but there are these wildflower species, uh, which are the original ones. If you went to the mountains of Turkey, for example, you would see these blooming all over the place in the spring. They're low growing. They look like tulips, but they're low growing different colors, different flower uh, shapes to them, and different uh, foliage shapes and colors too. Very interesting looking plants. Um, and they're more hardy than the regular hybrid tulips, so they tend to come back year after year. Well, you just gave me a new idea for my new potential garden, so I appreciate ah, that. Good. Yeah, <laughs> that I hopefully will not kill this season. That would be nice. Uh, you mentioned garlic earlier, so I want to talk about garlic and alliums. You know, when should we get those planted, and what are we talking about when we're talking about alliums? Uh, so when we talk about alliums, we're meaning garlic, mostly garlic and shallots this time of year. Of course, you can you plant the flowering alliums, the, the drumstick alliums, and those types of alliums too, if you like. Uh, but for garlic and shallots, uh, you will be planting them in mid to end of October uh, in a raised bed. Uh, you want to get your bar garlic cloves, uh, not necessarily get the ones from the grocery store, because those varieties are usually from California, which are not adapted to our climate here uh, in Connecticut and in New England. Uh, so go to a farmer's market or go online or go somewhere, a garden center, where they have locally grown or regionally grown garlic uh, that you can buy. And what you'll do is you take your, your garlic bulbs home, and then the night before you want to be planting, you break them apart so into individual cloves, and then just let them sit in a bowl uh, on the kitchen counter overnight. And that'll toughen up the bottoms of them where you broke them apart. Uh, callus them is what it's called. 
um, so that they'll root a little bit faster. And then the next uh, day, just go out there and start popping in those individual cloves into the, the raised bed that's amended with compost. And you may want to put them, say, six or eight inches apart in that raised bed. And do remember, though, uh, every clove you plant turns into a bulb that'll have six to eight more cloves next summer. So if you go ahead and plant 50 cloves, <laughs> you're going to have 50 <laughs> bulbs of garlic. That's a lot of garlic. Even for me, who likes garlic, that's a lot of garlic. Is it, though? I'm one of those people that if, if the recipe calls for two garlics, it's obviously 20 garlics. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> obviously. Oh. Uh, everyone should interpret it that way. Exactly. I mean, I'm such a mathematician over here, and as well as a gardener, as we all know. And so right. you mentioned trees earlier, too. So how do you pick the right size and type of tree for your garden? Like, what do you look for? Yeah. So when you're picking out trees, this is a good time of year to plant trees, especially deciduous trees, the ones that drop their leaves. Um, and often this time of year, you'll see garden centers and nurseries putting them on sale because they don't want to hold on to them through the winter. So they'll start putting them on sale. And, and the further we get into fall, the bigger the sales are. Uh, but I think it's good to go out early because you get a better choice of what's left. Um, and as far as the tree, when you're looking for the tree, think about how you want to use it. So some people want to have a shade tree, nice big maple, for example. Other people might have just a little small tree because they have a small yard. Some might want to have a tree that has beautiful flowers on it or has fruit on it, for that matter. Uh, some might just want to have a tree that's a good wildlife tree for birds because it has berries that they like. So think about your uses of that tree in the landscape, why you want to have this tree in the first place, and then try to find the right location for it. And most trees, if not all of them, are going to like a full sun location or at least part sun location and well-drained soil. You don't want to put them, unless you have something like a willow, you don't want to put them in an area that's going to be standing water in the spring and summer. Um, and also remember the ultimate size of the tree. So look at the tag and believe it. <laughs> I know a lot of people look at it. Ah, it'll never right. grow that big. I'll be long gone by the time it's 50 feet tall. And then they end up staying in that house for 20 years and it's 50 feet tall. Right. Uh, so if it says it's going to get really big, then believe it, it is. And make sure you give it enough space so you don't have it crowding the house, the garage, um, your neighbor's yard, the driveway, whatever it is. So we talked about this in previous conversations, and I think a lot more people are wanting to be more selective um, with their plants, especially when it comes to being able to contribute to the ecosystem, um, being more uh, climate friendly, environmentally friendly. So when it comes to picking plants for your backyard, um, whether it's flowers, shrubs or trees, do you have any advice or, or whatnots when it comes to creating like pollinator gardens? You know, what does that look like? Yeah, so th that's become very popular. And it's, in fact, in Connecticut, uh, they started a movement called po Pollinator Pathways down in Wilton, Connecticut, uh, where groups of people, garden club members, got together and started installing pollinator gardens in libraries and school grounds and churches and places like that with the idea that we're creating more pollinator pockets so that the pollinators can have a pathway from one garden to the next because they do move around a lot. And so they need to have places to go. Uh, so pollinators are, are very popular and pollinator gardens are great and fall is a perfectly good time to, to start a pollinator garden. What you always want to look for when you're doing pollinators is you want to have plants that will bloom from spring to fall. Not an individual plant that's going to bloom that whole time, but different plants. So you have something in the spring blooming, something in midsummer that's blooming, something in fall that's blooming. And that'll give the pollinators a constant source of food right through the summer. It's particularly important in the spring and the fall, obviously, because the spring they're just coming out of hibernation and they're looking for pollen. I know uh, I watch uh, pollinators on the crocuses and, and early blooming uh, trees like the uh, cornus moss, the cornelian cherry. 
they love them because they're bloom early and there's not a lot of other things that are actually out there uh, for them to feed on. And the same thing is happening in the fall when they're getting ready to go into hibernation. So having plants like asters and some of the goldenrods there, uh, those are really great plants for pollinators. So making sure you have a nice array of plants that are there and, of course, put them in a, a sunny spot, well-drained soil. And make sure you don't get seduced into planting things that can become thugs in your garden. And the one I'm thinking of is the common milkweed. Often people love to grow milkweed because it attracts the monarch butterfly which is a great thing to do because the monarch needs milkweed to complete its life cycle. But the common milkweed, the one you see growing in fields or on the roadsides, that's a bit of a thug. It'll grow by underground rhizomes and roots all over the place. It'll take over a garden. So if you put it in there with other plants in a couple of years, you have just a milkweed garden. So it's better to grow other kinds of milkweeds. There's a swamp milkweed, the purple milkweed. There's a number of different ones out there uh, that are just as good for the pollinators and for the butterflies, but they're not as aggressive in the garden. And got one more question here. You talked so much about pollinator-friendly plants. Do you have any you would recommend as someone who might be just starting or if they want to attract more bees, for example, or, or what else? You know, what kind of plants would you recommend? Yeah, so um, things that would be uh, native plants you know, so or species versions of plants, I should say. That's probably the best thing. Mm -hmm. So, for example, echinacea is always a great plant to have for pollinators, great one to have for birds, too, because the little finches love the seed heads at the end of the season. Uh, but you want to make sure you get uh, a echinacea that looks like an echinacea. Unfortunately, with some of the breeding that's gone into echinacea recently has some of them looking like uh, little toy poodles, <laughs> little fluffy heads to them and little petals sticking out. And that. a pollinator who's flying around looking for echinacea sees that and doesn't recognize that. So you want to stick with the ones that look kind of like the echinacea purpurea, the, the one that has the, the cone on it and then the, the petals. They could be different colors, but as long as it looks like that, that's what you want to stick with. So echinacea is a great pollinator plant to have in the garden. Um, the cat mints are really good. They're earlier blooming ones. Any of the salvias are really nice uh, pollinator garden plants. Uh, so there's a number of different ones out there. You've been listening to Charlie Nardozzi, who is with us today to answer all of your gardening questions. He's also the host of the Connecticut Garden Journal on Connecticut Public Radio. Let us know what questions about fall gardening that you may have. Have you planted or harvested any vegetables yet? Please let us know. Give us a call, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. 
I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. Today is our fall gardening show, and joining us is horticulturist Charlie Nardozzi. He's also the host of the Connecticut Garden Journal. There's a lot of things to think about when planning a garden, whether you're expanding your gardening space or perhaps getting ready to plant bulbs for the first time. There are so many factors to consider. The what, where, and when you should plant, just to name a few. And many gardeners are choosing native plants, which are some of the most sustainable plants to plant. And now we have Charlie back. And Charlie, I want to ask, you know, usually this is also the time where people would be cutting down perennials. But the advice now, I think, is how to put our garden to bed and clean them up has changed a little bit. So can you tell us about this sort of older advice versus your new advice on putting your garden to bed for the winter? Sure. Yeah. So the older advice or the older practice would be to literally clean up your whole garden. So cut things down, remove all the foliage, uh, remove any kind of weeds, uh, maybe spread a little compost and really have everything kind of neat and tidy uh, in your garden, uh, which looks nice. But what we've found out in the last bunch of years is that that's not the best thing ecologically for our yard and our garden, because a lot of that air, a lot of those dead plants that are just hanging out there, like you would see in a meadow, for example, is where pollinators and beneficial insects will overwinter. And so by removing all of them uh, from your garden and putting them in a compost pile or just getting rid of them, you're taking them out of your yard and you're not going to have them um, for the next year. So now the recommendation is, just like I say to my dogs, leave it. (laughs) Uh, So you just want to leave things there as much as you can. So I know this is a stretch for people, and I've I've often had this conversation with gardeners about, but it's so messy and it's so bad looking and all that. So if there are certain things that are really bad looking, all right, go ahead and cut those back. But try to leave as much as you can, especially stocky things like echinacea stalks and uh, phlox stalks and zinnia stalks, things that that, uh, an overwintering insect might be tunneling into the center of them and spending the winter there and leave those there until the spring. And then in the spring, after a group of 50 degree days, what you want to do is come back into that garden. Now you can clean things up because after those warm days, the pollinators have moved on. Um, And then you can remove them if you want or just chop them up and leave them there. Put some compost down and then you'll be ready to go. So my real question here is, is your dog listening to you? (laughs) Sometimes. Sometimes they listen to me. (laughs) All right. Well, hopefully he's leaving the leaves alone. (laughs) So, Charlie, we got a question on Twitter from CT Climate News, and they're asking, Charlie, can you speak to the importance of waiting to mow fields until after the first hard frost for pollinators? Yes, that's a good point. Uh, So if you do have a field or a meadow around your property, uh, it's always great to wait until the first hard frost or even, even later than that. Uh, What we're trying to do with fields and meadows, a lot of people like the look of those fields. In fact, our neighbor's daughter is getting married and we have a big field. They have a big field there. And he specifically mentioned that the guy who comes to brush hog don't come and brush hog before the wedding because she likes the look of all the nice grass, brown grass kind of waving in the breeze in the field. So we like that look in a field. Uh, But to keep that look there, you do have to mow it at least once a year. If we just disappeared from the planet, we being humans, uh, this whole area would just turn into a forest again. That is what the natural succession is 
for this area is forested. Um, and it was like that when the colonists came uh, way back when. So the best way to do that is to mow once a year, but the best time to do it would be after a hard frost or even into November, early December, to knock all of the things down, leave them on the ground. Um, and what you're trying to do is prevent that succession from happening. So you'll end up chopping down some early shrubs, some little tree saplings, things of that nature, so that in the spring, everything will come up and you'll still have your wildflowers. And so, because we're going to be talking about mowing later too as well, but can you also um, tell us why leaving plants alone is also good for the insects? Well, it provides a space for them, a space for them to hide, a space for them to overwinter, and sometimes a space for them to have some food too. Uh, so leaving plants there, what we're trying to do in our garden is mimic what's happening in nature. And that seems to be the, the big trend now in gardens is let's look at what happens in nature and try to mimic that in our own yard. Uh, so, for example, in a forest, a deciduous forest, especially with maples or oaks, you'll notice that the soil is very rarely bare. There's always something on it, either dead leaves from last year or, or plants growing on it. Um, you rarely see just open bare soil like we would in a farm field, for example. And what that does is it protects the soil, protects the microbes in the soil, and it creates more of an organic layer there as all this organic material breaks down. And that helps feed the trees and helps them grow. So if we can mimic that in our gardens, for example, in a, a vegetable or an annual flower garden, instead of tilling things under in the fall to kill everything, um, don't do that. You know, just either put a, a cover crop on uh, that'll protect it through the winter, or just lay some hay or, or, or straw or grass clippings from untreated lawns on top of those beds and just leave it there. And that's going to protect that soil. And then in the spring, all you have to do is come in with a layer of compost and then you can plant going to take a quick call from James in Hamden, who's been participating in the metal movement. James, you're on the air. Hi. Um, yeah, this is uh, something that came over from Europe. Uh, the idea is to replace your, your typical suburban lawn with uh, volunteer uh, grasses and wildflowers and so on, to let it all happen by itself without human guidance. Um, the problem is that uh, you wind up with something that's so, so much more dynamic and beautiful that uh, neighbors can't help but compare it to their lawns, their, their, their rugs-like, rug-like growths of their lawns, and they don't like the fact that I'm uh, recreating a meadow. They don't like it. So I'm not sure exactly what to do about that. Between me and Yale, there's a continuous... Um, meadow along Whitney Avenue that uh, is exhibiting many kinds of grasses, uh, but not quite as uh, free of human influence as, as in my case. I'm at the corner of uh, Goodrich and Prospect, so that's, that's the sub suburbs, as I call it here. Well, thank you so much, James, for sharing that with us. Uh, Charlie, are you familiar with the metal movement? And what can uh, James do about neighbors who may not be excited about metal? Right. It is great to grow a meadow. And I, what I usually suggest with people is if you want to do a meadow for pollinators, for wildlife, for all those good reasons that James is pointing out, um, maybe just take a little section of your yard in the backyard, a side yard, somewhere like that, where you're not going to be using it for entertaining, kids playing, all that kind of stuff. And that's where your little meadow area, that's kind of a nice compromise. Another thing you can do is create what we call a bee lawn, bee as in honeybee. Uh, and this is something that I learned about at the University of Minnesota at a conference recently. 
And what they've found is that if you can grow uh, plants that are bee friendly, that have a lot of pollen in them, uh, but flower at a low level, meaning that they flower at maybe three inches tall or four inches tall, then you can mow the lawn at a higher level than you normally would. So more like four to six inches, but you're mowing it. You're not just leaving it there. So it looks more like a lawn, but it has all of these other flowers blooming. And the three flowers that they used were white clover, Dutch white clover, prunella, which is also known as heel all, and creeping thyme. And they found that by seeding all that in the lawn in late fall, so what you would do is you'd scalp that lawn down really low to the ground like in November, you would aerate it, and then you would throw the seed mix in there, water it really well. The next spring, it'll start coming up. And after a year or two, once it's established, you'll see that as long as you're mowing the lawn up at least four inches tall or, or even higher, that all these other plants are blooming all summer long, which are creating an environment for pollinating insects that they like. And they found that they were able to attract 53 different species of native pollinators to this kind of lawn. So that's a nice little compromise that you can do where you still have something that looks like a lawn, but it's very, actually very pollinator friendly. Wow. Yeah, that sounds that sounds really amazing. And especially with what James just shared. And I, I know a lot of people are interested in, in the no mow lawns movement. But so when it comes to doing that, when uh, not mowing lawns or meadows, are there concerns about ticks? Especially we've been, you know, we've been hearing a lot about how because the climate is a lot warmer. So they're either staying around longer or, you know, waking up earlier. Yes, that is a reason. That's the reason I mow as much as we do, because we have a ton of ticks and we have dogs that, of course, get the ticks on them and bring them in the house and then they get on us. Uh, so I know that that's concern with meadows and people having meadows around the house is that if they walk through them, there's a higher likelihood they're going to get ticks on their clothing and then on their body. So uh, I think, again, this alternative of either doing a meadow a little separate from the lawn, so it's not a place that you travel through frequently, um, or doing the bee lawn, which is high, but not it's not going to be as attractive to ticks as a meadow. Uh, might be some nice ways around that problem. And along those lines, too, especially now that we're seeing the leaves falling, is there a good time to clean up the leaves? You know, what do you suggest? Well, uh, if you, this is going back to my command for my dog. Yes. <laughs> Leave them <laughs> Leave alone. It. Leave them alone. So if you just have a little bit of leaves, I know there's so many beautiful, big old maples and oaks in Connecticut, and you get these houses that have these big trees that drop a ton of leaves. If you get just a little bit of leaves, maybe a couple inches of leaves on your lawn or in your gardens, on your lawn, just mow them and leave them there. In your gardens, just leave them there. They're not going to harm anything. They're not so thick that they're going to kill your plants. But if you do have a property where you have a big tree or the wind blows all your neighbor's leaves into your yard, that kind of thing, you are going to have to remove some of them. You can't leave a foot thick uh, amount of leaves on a lawn or on a plant uh, and not have them rot during the winter. So I would just say take some of those leaves off and then use them in other places. You can use them in your uh, vegetable garden, annual flower garden, shred them up, put them in there, use them for mulching around plants to get them through the winter, or just create a pile. It's called a leaf mold pile in the back of your yard somewhere put some fencing around it or something to hold it in one place, dump all your leaves there. And after a couple of years, you'll see that they rot down into this beautiful compost material that you can use in your garden. Uh, so leaves are something that you should never bag up and send away anywhere. And so you just mentioned using leaves and composting. So should gardeners be thinking about fertilizing in the fall, whether whether or not that's putting down compost or yeah, saving those leaves and, and, and putting them into your vegetable garden? Uh, sure. I mean, it wouldn't hurt for sure to put some compost down around your perennial flower gardens, uh, maybe in some of those beds. But I like doing it in the spring uh, because the compost itself uh, will be more uh, viable and have more energy to it than if you put it in the fall and then it goes through a whole winter. 
Uh, so that's why I usually do more of the no dig kind of technique where whether it be in a flower garden or a vegetable garden, I'll do some mulching in the fall or I leave the plants there in the fall. And in the spring, I'll come in and that's when I put the compost down because I can plant right into it. And so for for those who are thinking about expanding their garden areas or even starting a brand new garden, is now a good time to do that? And how would you go about doing that? Uh, Yes, now is an excellent time for expanding gardens or building new gardens. And I would do uh, that whole no-dig method that I was mentioning. Happened to have written a book about this topic, too. Well, just happened to have a book about it. So you all should go check it out. That's (laughs) obviously what we're talking about here. (laughs) That's obviously. It's called The Complete Guide to No-Dig Gardening. And the best thing to do would be if you're an expanded existing flower garden, for example, is that you mow it all down, the, the grass area around it, down low, and then you come in with newspaper. This regular old newspaper, Hartford Current, doesn't matter which kind it is. Uh, and if it, even if it has colored ink, you can just put it down because the colored ink tends to be soy-based. You want to avoid using any of those inserts that are glossy because those will may have heavy metals in them. You put down about four layers of newspaper, wet it after each layer because they'll blow away if you don't. Um, and then on top of that, you can put like a six to eight inch thick layer of hay or straw. That works pretty well. And then on top of that, a four inch layer of compost. And then just leave it. There's that word again. (laughs) And you want to leave it all winter long. And in the spring, you come in and you literally just plant right through it. Because by spring, a lot of that material is starting to break down. The compost is there, providing a medium to plant the plants in. And everything just kind of pops and grows really well. And you haven't had to dig it, turn it, till it, work so hard. Um, And it's better for the plants because you have all those nutrients in the soil that you didn't uh, till up or remove. Uh, all that dead grass is actually fertilizer for your plants. So the biggest takeaway so far is raise beds and leave your leaves alone is what Charlie right. is telling us right now. And that's it. that's who you've been listening to. We've been listening to Charlie Nardozzi, who's a horticulturist and host of Connecticut Garden Journal on Connecticut Public. And he'll be staying with us to answer all of your gardening questions. So let us know what questions you have. Give us a call, 888-720-9677, or leave us a comment on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. The leaves are falling, and soon enough, we might be seeing some snow. But until then, it's prime time for getting your garden ready for next year. And as we're learning this hour, that involves a lot of lawn and soil care. But don't neglect giving your gardening tools some much-needed TLC as well. And it's also a good time to start thinking about pest-proofing your gardening. And usually... When we're talking about pests, we're talking about those creepy crawler invasive insects, or in my case, adorable groundhogs, and bears too. But before we get to that, we have Charlie Nardozzi, who is a horticulturist and host of the Connecticut Garden Journal with us. And Charlie, you just took a trip to Italy. So we'll love to hear your thoughts if you've seen any amazing gardens while you were there. Oh, yes. Thank you. Uh, We went to Puglia, Italy, which is the heel of the boot, if you're looking at the map of Italy. And it's an area that is very hot, very dry, very reminiscent of Greece, uh, that kind of landscape to it. And it is one of their major olive oil producing areas. They produce 50% of the olive oil for the the whole country in Puglia. 
so there's big groves of olive trees all over the place, uh, which really kind of defines the landscape. But after you go up into the hills, you get a more diversity of gardens. We went to one place, the Pomona Botanical Garden, that features 600 varieties of figs. Uh, figs from around the world, local figs, and the gentleman that's running that really has this personal mission to preserve a lot of these old varieties of figs, uh, just like we do with tomatoes, for example. Uh, so a lot of beautiful gardens there. We saw a beautiful cactus garden, succulent garden um, that was there. Uh, we went to the University of Salento, which is outside of the city of Lecce, which is one of the main cities um, in Puglia. And they have an area that is a partnership between the university, the city of Lecce, and the European Union. And what they're doing is they're taking about a 40-acre parcel of land that was really just devastated. It's the only thing that's been going on there agriculturally is sheep have been grazing it. So it's all kind of wasteland. The soil is really degraded. There's just a lot of invasive species, things of that nature. And they're trying to bring back the native plants, uh, which is really a, a noble thing and use this as a demonstration garden for what people can do. So they're bringing back a lot of aromatic herbs and shrubs and forests. There, I didn't realize that Puglia used to be totally forested back in the 1700s until people started cutting all the trees down for uh, lumber and for manufacturing and, and other uses. Uh, so it's a really interesting part of the world. The sad part is that there is a disease going through the olive groves. Um, and the disease has killed over the last 10 years 20 million olive trees. And so they're working hard to come up with, with resistant varieties. They're really concerned about what they call the millinery olive trees. These are olive trees that are literally two to 3,000 years old. They were there at the time when Jesus Christ was walking on the planet, which is pretty amazing to think about. Um, and so they're trying to protect those from this disease that really kind of uh, kills trees pretty quickly. Well, I love a traveling trip when you can learn so much about the history <laughs> and their gardening. And when you said olive oil, I was immediately thinking about the garlic that I'll be planting and sauteing in that olive oil. Yeah, so that sounds like a plan to me. Um, yeah. And we, so we have a question from Lurleen who is calling from Hamden, and she has a question about her fertilization process. Lurleen, you're on the air. Thank you. Um, my question is, I have daffodils that I planted a year ago, and I'm supposed to top dress them with fertilizer, like daffodil fertilizer, but I'm not sure how late in the fall I should do that so that I have a good, um, I have enough time. Well, thank yeah, you so Arlene, much. so the, the time to do that fertilization would be in October. And you can get a, a product called Bold Booster. It's very generally available in garden centers. And just sprinkle that around those areas where your daffodils grow. So you do have to remember where they are, which is always a problem in our yard. Uh, but if you could sprinkle them around in there in October, that would be a good time to feed them because their roots are starting to grow and they'll take up that fertilizer. Thank you so much for that question, Lernaline. And uh, Charlie, we kind of talked about this a little bit earlier, but it's been a really challenging year for gardening, especially with all the rain and overcast. And we also have... Uh, we had several days where the air quality was not the best. Um, so is there any way we can better flood proof our gardens or think about flooding when you're preparing your garden for next year? Yeah, I mean, we can certainly do that. But as we mentioned earlier in the show, you know, you never know year to year what it might be. Next right. year it might be dry. So you <laughs> right. flood proof your garden and then everything is, is wil wilting and shriveling up because of the heat and the drought. Uh, so I think a better way to approach it is to really kind of climate proof your garden. And that would include things uh, building up the soil, having a lot of organic material in the soil. So if it's wet, the water drains through it. If it's dry, it'll hold more moisture. 
um, using things like raised beds that I was mentioning before, growing the right plants in the right place, as we mentioned, and using native plants that are more adapted to the vagaries of weather. Um, that if it gets really cold or if it gets really hot, they'll be able to withstand it better. I think a lot of those things are going to be the cornerstones or the keystones uh, for having a garden that stays healthy and productive during these extremes of climate change. And especially here in Connecticut, I know elsewhere as well, we were really impacted by the smoke and smog from wildfires. Yeah. So does this impact plants as well? Oh, sure. Yeah. All of that uh, particle matter is going to be on the leaves and that's going to reduce the photosynthesis of plants. Maybe even you might even see plants that leaves just kind of drop in the middle of the summer. You're not sure why. It could be they had just a thick uh, layer or coating on them and, and that uh, turned the leaves uh, to yellow and they drop. So uh, if you have plants that, and you have uh, air pollution warnings, uh, you might want to go out there and spray some of your plants like in the evening, just kind of get the get the, the part, particulate matter off of them uh, so that they can uh, do better. You know, this year it probably wasn't much of an issue because what it would end up happening is that it would rain <laughs> right? <laughs> every few days. So that cleaned them up for you. And so this might be a first for a Where We Live gardening show, but want to talk about bears. We have had a lot of bear sightings in Connecticut. How are they impacting gardens? Are they impacting gardens? And are there ways we can keep them out besides having snacks? <laughs> <laughs> yes. So bears have adapted to human beings, uh, very much so. And so they know where to go. They're pretty intelligent creatures. A lot of times they're looking for your garbage pails. Uh, where they can get an easy snack or your bird feeders, you know, places like that where it's an easy snack. They may go into your garden sometimes uh, looking for some fruits and, and things like that or some berries like raspberries. Uh, but uh, most of the time, I think an, an easier snack is to go into your garbage and just kind of knock over the barrels and forage through it for whatever you have for your leftovers. Um, if you do have them in the gardens, of course, probably the best thing would be an electric fence, uh, some way of shocking them, kind of getting them uh, unaccustomed to going in there. So you train them not to go into this certain area. A regular fence is, you know, if you get a big enough bear, they're just going to barrel right through it. Uh, so that's not really going to stop them. But an electric fence might be a good a way to, to keep them at bay. You just gave me some serious Jurassic Park vibes. <laughs> <laughs> that's a big bears you got. That is, you know, that's some big, and you know, I, I, I have not seen any in my yard, thankfully, but I have a lot of friends that have, and when I see them, you know, they're adorable, but you do not want them walking around. <laughs> no, you don't, especially if it's a mama with her cubs, then she gets very protective, and if you get in, in between the two of them, it's not a good scene. Right, exactly. So we've got another question here from Christine, who is asking from Farmington. Um, can Charlie address the Asian jumping worms problem across the state? Even in, yes. with potted plants, they're horrible, deplete nutrition of soil, and some say we should live with them. What do you say, Charlie? Well, I think we're probably going to end up having to live with them. We really would not like to, but it is something that has really uh, spread all over the place, all over the, our region here. Um, on the Midwest, upper Midwest, there's a lot of research done in the University of Wisconsin, if you want to do some personal research on the, the Asian jumping worms or the snake worm. This is a, a earthworm uh, that was brought here from Japan in Asia. Um, and what it is, is it's much more aggressive than the European earthworm. That's the one that we normally have in our soils that was brought here by the colonists uh, back 400 years ago. Uh, before that, there really were no earthworms in the North America. People don't really realize that, but earthworms are not a native species here. That's a fun um, fact. So, yeah. And so these Asian earthworms uh, are very aggressive. Uh, they'll eat a lot more organic matter. They re reproduce faster. They, they survive longer. They have a, 
lots of babies all over the place. And what they'll do is, they'll, especially in a forest, they'll just uh, eat all the organic matter in the forest. So the seeds don't germinate, young trees don't survive. Um, there's no food for wildlife, that kind of thing. And you have a forest where the big trees and then nothing else underneath it. And if you have it in the garden, it's a similar kind of issue where you can see uh, plants not thriving. And if you want to know if you have the Asian jumping worm in your garden, look for, I guess the soil would look like grape nuts, if you remember that cereal. I think it's still around. Yes, it's still uh, around. Yeah, it is. Okay. <laughs> One of your favorites, maybe. I don't know. Uh, but that, if your soil kind of looks like grape nuts, that's a sign that you have Asian jumping worms in there. Another thing you can do is pour a solution on a garden bed, if you think you might have them, of one gallon of water with a third of a cup of ground yellow mustard seed. And just make a solution out of that, pour it on the garden, and then within a few minutes or so, you'll see these worms coming to the surface. It's very irritating to them. And you know if you have the Asian jumping worm, if it has, it's called a clitellum, which is a band that goes all the way around the worm. If it goes all the way around, that's the Asian one. If it doesn't go all the way around, that's the European one. And also they they wiggle a lot. So that's a, an easy way to, to figure them out. There as go. far as trying to keep them out of your garden, the best thing to do is that whenever you buy plants, whether it be at a garden center, a friend gives you a plant, you do a plant swap with some group, garden group, is to wash all the soil off those roots of those plants. Wash it all off, get rid of that soil. Because you don't know if you either have the worms or the eggs or the cocoons in there. And the eggs you can barely even see. So you'll never really know that. And then plant those plants. That'll be a way to keep them out uh, of your garden. Other than that, the only thing you do is really hand pick them. Put them in a black plastic bag. Stick them on the driveway. Let them bake. <laughs> Baked jumping worms. That, uh, that is an image. Them. I don't know if I need it. <laughs> it goes with your Jurassic Park image. There you go. Um, and some people have been, like I was mentioning, University of Wisconsin, they've been doing a lot of experimenting with different other kinds of additives. Tea tree seed meal is one thing that they've been playing around with. Biochar is another one. Uh, beneficial nematodes. So there is research that's happening, but right now there's really not a lot of surefire ways to get rid of them. Well, thank you so much, Christine, for that question. And that's a surefire way to end this conversation, though I know we can talk forever about plants and jumping worms, apparently. Uh, thank you so much to Charlie Nardozzi, who's a horticulturist and host of the Connecticut Garden Journal on Connecticut Public Radio. Thanks for joining us, Charlie. You're welcome. I'm Catherine Shen. Today's show is produced by Tess Terrible. Our technical producer is Kat Pastor. Download Where We Live anytime on your favorite podcast app. And thank you so much for listening.